Welcome, everybody, to Nothing to Fear, the podcast where we are watching the scary movies so you don't have to, and you can talk about them with your friends. I'm your host, Billy Schultz, and I am joined by two of my good friends, virtually, of course, thanks to our social distancing. I'm joined by Luke Mason, who is in his home. Hello, Luke. Domo arigato. Everyone, robato. Everybody, robato. <laughs> and I'm also joined from his home, Alex Wan. How are you doing? I'm good. I know how to speak English, so hi. Hi. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I heard you learned. <laughs> I learned it. Yeah, good job. Thanks. <laughs> it took a few years, but we got there. <laughs> we got there. You got there. You're doing a great job. If this is your first episode, we have been watching through horror movies that came out in the years that we were born. All of us are have birthdays in January, and this week for the end of January we are finishing off with a movie that came out in the year of Luke's birth Mm. and why don't you tell us Luke what movie we're watching today we are watching the 1987 film Hellraiser and just as a I guess temporal demographic aside uh, given that most social scientists now classify the millennial generation as everyone born between 1980 and 1995 1995 96 being a cutoff year for social media thus creating such a huge social difference of generation as opposed to everyone born to 2000 that's neither here nor there you can cut that out if you want (laughs) 1987 represents the pretty much just exactly in the middle of the millennial generation so there you go i'm a i'm a middle-aged millennial (laughs) <laughs> but I would say that, that that gives someone like me the most tentacle reach of the entire millennial generation from uh, all the culture. So I'm pretty excited about that. So I don't know why. The middle, eh? Just takes well, some time. <laughs> yeah, it just takes some time. <laughs> exactly. That song came out when I was 14. So everyone age like 9 to 20, I'm in the middle of in all of that. So There you go. <laughs> 1987. Yep. Good year. We've always said that, Luke, you are the epitome of the millennial, the finger on the pulse of pop culture and <laughs> social media and if it, everything. <laughs> if, if it came out between 1997 and 2009, I am a great resource <laughs> for you in that. Uh, Did you hear nice. that? Don't go to Luke if you want to learn about the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> no, good, good one. <laughs> Good one. All right. What do either of you know about the movie Hellraiser? I have very limited knowledge on this one, which should not come as a surprise to anybody, as I've, you know, I've, but mo- most of the horror movies I've watched in my life happened in 2020. I think I watched more movies this, this past year than in my entire life combined. Mm. So I know very little about Hellraiser. But Alex, what do you know about this movie? Hellraiser? I barely knew her. <laughs> That's that's really all I know. That's all I have. I've never, uh, I've never heard of this movie. I did learn that it's like a series with what nine nine, and I've never heard of a single one. So hot damn! Like that joke is the extent of my knowledge of Hellraiser. So that's, <laughs> that's a good joke. That's a good Thank joke. <laughs> what about you, Luke? I actually am pretty sincerely optimistic for this movie because it to the extent in my life where it's ever been talked about the horror genre which isn't much this one is often at least referenced as a interesting 
inclusion in the genre. And I think it's probably because the the villainous type character Pinhead has become a very iconic looking villain in the history of horror. Mm-hmm. I imagine, Alex, that even if you don't know anything about Hellraiser, you've seen a picture of Pinhead before in some cultural pulpy way i don't know it's all it's all over the place i I don't know i don't know what pinhead looks like but i'm sure when we watch it and i see it i'll be like oh i guess that's pinhead yeah (laughs) it'll be pretty obvious (laughs) yeah because the villain of the film or at least one of the main looking one looks the way that he does i'm gonna i'm gonna assume that the title of this film is a little bit more quote-unquote literal than the expression is so i'm gonna guess there's a supernatural dimension to this film and that pinhead has some sort of motivation that we might not know about because demons but that's okay (laughs) because demons (laughs) i just i don't know i'm 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 pretty i'm actually excited for this one because it's one of the movies of this month that we're doing that i've actually heard other people talk about as a relatively good film in the horror canon And I think Pinhead is a really cool looking monster. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's one I'm, it's it's like definitely one of those like ticking the boxes of a, of a cultural canon movie that I'm excited to do today. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Ticking, ticking the box. This is one, the, the iconography of Pinhead, the poster, I guess the poster boy or poster demon or whatever of this, you know, franchise is, is Pinhead, which even though I haven't seen it, I recognize that image of the man holding, I think he's holding like a puzzle box or something and he's got pins all stuck into his face. And I, yeah, that's, that is, that is all I know. I am looking forward to it. I've had people on the nothing to fear Instagram account. I did a little poll while asking what people's favorite horror movies were and Hellraiser came up a couple of times from people. And just because, you know, you have this, image of something i'm very excited for it i I really really hope it's not like friday the 13th where we've seen jason Voorhees in his hockey mask in a million films or like that that culture was baked in and then he's not even in the first one so i hope that the character of pinhead is someone who is present in this version and not just something alluded to in sequels i'll put i'll put money that pinhead's in this one yeah okay I have heard that this one is kind of one where if you watch Pinhead or Pinhead Hellraiser one and two sort of together, it kind of works better. So we are not planning on watching the sequel for next episode, but I think just going into that, knowing that maybe this isn't going to be obviously this isn't going to be the whole story. I am I'm I will go in right now. I may rue these words later, but I am optimistic about this movie just because of how much legacy there is around it. And it seems like there is quite a lot of fondness for this franchise. I will say I'm not super scared of what I'm going to watch. I think I think it'll be gory. I think it'll be 80s, campy, ultra gore, interesting special effects and interesting prosthetics. And everything else on top of that is going to be weird horror gravy. And so... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm excited to get into it. I mean, one thing I will say, I, I, maybe that's a good like thing to temper our expectations. Like we're kind of getting a chapter one, which is useful mm-hmm. to know. I I will point out that there was really no other choice for 1987 <laughs> for any other movie to do. <laughs> like just like like the Hellraiser and then 
I'd never even heard of any of the other horror movies that came out in 1987. So it probably is almost certainly the best horror movie of 1987, but, you know. <laughs> that just means for January 2022, Luke, you have to pick one of the worst ones. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I actually think it might be the second best one at that point. Yeah, there you go. All righty. Well, shall we get into this, friends? Anything last last minute you want to say, talk about? No, I got nope. nothing. Let's watch this. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So just for the people listening and watching, watching, they're not watching this. They're listening to this. Just for everybody listening, we are going to be spoiling this movie when we come back from the little trailer break. So if you wish to avoid spoilers, this is your chance to pause the podcast, watch the movie, come back. Uh, if you don't care about spoilers, then by all means, listen on. And as well, if you are worried about any of the triggering or potentially triggering scenes that are likely to happen in this movie, please do check out doesthedogdie.com and just have a little look through of, of any of the gore or violent or upsetting scenes because we may or may not talk about them in our second half and we don't want to trigger anybody or mm. or make anybody upset listening to our show this is supposed to be a fun show and not <laughs> scary not one. a stressful show so they're just podcasts there's nothing to fear hey that's my line <laughs> let's cut it <laughs> hey 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 question for you two what do you call a podcast you need to take a break from hmm. uh pause cast okay bye or a okay. pause. yeah let's go we're cutting it. Cut. Cut. Stop. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Okay, Mr. Wan, take it away. Hellraiser is a 1987 British supernatural horror film written and directed by Clive Barker and produced by Christopher Figg based on Barker's novella, The Hellbound Heart. The film marked Barker's directorial debut. The film involves a puzzle box which summons the Cenobites, a murderous group from another dimension who cannot differentiate between pain and pleasure. They are led by lead Cenobite, played by Doug Bradley, and identified in the sequels as Pinhead. Yep, and Pinhead was in this movie. Yes, he <laughs> revealed himself in the first five minutes, which I greatly appreciated. <laughs> right? I was like, yes, okay, we've seen him. Pinhead is here. Let's keep going with the rest of the movie. That's how all horror movies should go. They should be like, this is what you're going to be afraid of. 
and then we'll put that away for a minute, and then you'll, we'll come back to it later. Bits and Cenobites. <laughs> Bits and Cenobites. Well, friends, what are our initial thoughts about Hellraiser Part 1? Give us your take. I think I liked it, but this is probably one of the grossest movies I've ever seen. It's like, if you don't like blood or gore, this is not a movie you should watch. It's <laughs> definitely not. It's incredibly gory. It's very, very gross with like, like, I think the hairs on my arms, if there are any, were just sticking up the whole time. Like it was, I was just so uncomfortable during this entire viewing. I was really grossed out. It was really weird. And I think I liked it, but I, I think I need to talk about it and kind of decompress a little before I have my final decision. But yeah, it was it's weird, it's gross, but I think I liked it. We'll see. Yeah. I I agree. It was right up there in probably one of the most viscerally upsetting movies we've watched so far. In terms of body horror, we haven't done too much. And in terms of the special effects and the not even special effects, I guess the practical effects, the makeup, the prosthetics, the costuming even was one of the best entries that we've seen, even for it being all, you know, fakey prosthetics and, and fake blood and stuff. It was really, really visceral. And even the stuff that was real fakey looked pretty cool to me. So I, I also, I, I think I'm I'm more solid in saying that I did like this movie and I'm happy to be for, for me personally happy that we're ending our birthday celebration <laughs> as it were sort of strong with this one of, of the four we did for January. I think we're ending strong strongest with Hellraiser. But Luke, what was your initial take? Well, I think just for consistency's sake, I do have to say at the outset that uh, the acting was not very good and the dialogue was yeah. okay, but not great. And the plot was actually quite simple. Now I'm only saying that because I know I always say those things. And, and this movie also suffered from some of those elements, but for some reason I liked this movie a lot more than several other movies that also fall prey to those type of, you know, storytelling pitfalls and I was thinking about it while I was watching it because I was it was I was like consciously reflecting while the movie was going on is like this movie kind of is in these really obvious ways falling trapped to these things that I don't like in horror movies and yet I'm not having the same kind of uh, visceral revulsion to it that I often do with these kind of movies and why is that like what's different about this film and I think weirdly this film succeeds because it's actually taking itself seriously for a for for a particularly gross body horror supernatural thing what i i guess what i liked about it is that it wasn't trying to be anything more than it was this movie was definitely not campy hmm. there's no way you could classify this as a comedy horror right <laughs> this this was no, not absolutely. a this was not a funny movie and i think it succeeded because a lot of comedy horrors aren't really good at either. So they're letting down two genres. <laughs> and this one, <laughs> this one had a narrower focus. And I think that that paid off for me in terms of like being impressed with Pinhead, being in enjoying 
even not being less worried about what the fuck is Kirsty doing in all this because even though her acting wasn't great, it's not like I had all of these auxiliary questions around her behavior like I did, for example, last week in Friday Night with Charlie. It was a little bit, I think the simplicity of the plot actually really helped this. And then it, it, it didn't give itself all these garden paths to go down that would make it nonsensical later on. And that was the strength of the film, I think. So I don't know, like I want to put into your two heads to think about like, because I could be totally off base here, but the difference between comedy horror and just horror horror. Do you know what I mean? Because I would not put any comedy in this film. I agree. And I think, I think Luke, I think you hit the pin on the head with that one, <laughs> uh, with, your, <laughs> with ah. your assertion of it being very simple, right? Like the plot was, was basically like, you have this box and if you fuck with it, beings from an extra dimensional space will come and tear you apart that's it Mm -hmm. and it's like there's really no more what do they want can they be bargained with is there a you know this or that like they're pretty much like hey if you touch this box and you play with this demonic rubik's cube then we're gonna come for you and it's gonna be bad yeah and so I, i i agree that yeah they didn't try to make it funny they they didn't try to make it more like it was just like, OK, yes, we're making a horror movie. It's sort of straight down the pipe by the numbers. We'll do some jump scares. We'll do some scare scares. We'll do a lot of blood. And then there'll be a big dragon at the end. And also. and I thought for fun. I thought the Cenobites, Ceno or Ceno? How do we pronounce it? Ceno? I think Ceno. OK, I thought the Cenobites looked fucking awesome. Like they the aesthetic. Oh, yeah. The aesthetic of them. Is, is a kind of standout of this film, I would say. Especially Pinhead. He had a lot of gravitas. And a lot of the villains in these kind of 80s and 70s horror movies don't have gravitas. And I liked that about this film. Yeah, I like that he had a squad. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was like, cause you have Pinhead, which is the one that is, I guess, the poster boy that we, we talked about. But I didn't know that there was like, a bunch of other Cenobites, you know, there was like the lady one. And then the guy who was just chattery mouth of sour on teeth. The, and then the thumb with sunglasses, on. sunglasses, man. I, <laughs> and then the upside down one. <laughs> I thought that was job of the huts, bastard son or something. <laughs> yeah. Devin the hut. Devin the hut. Yeah. This was Morpheus's. This was the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar in like the alternate. Yeah dimension where everybody just has things sticking in them you know what they kind of look think that this no sorry you go first sorry i was just gonna say luke do you think that this dimension is kind of where the director of event horizon wished that they had gone Mm. and like just you know it was like in his head that oh this is where the event horizon went into hell and met all the centibytes but we didn't get to see that because he wasn't allowed to use the property (laughs) maybe yeah, see, that would have been a cool, like, explanation of Event Horizon. It certainly would have helped that but film. I... <laughs> you know what? If if it's, like, written in the Event Horizon lore that they did go to the dimensions where the Cenobites existed, I think I would have liked Event Horizon a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, that would have been cool. You know, but it's too we... it's too late for that. It's, it's like, 20 episodes too late, so <laughs> yeah. get out of here, <laughs> Event Horizon. <laughs> I Speaking of cultural references... And this could be totally not true, but not not so much Pinhead or the Lady one, but the other two Cenobites and the kind of Scorpion one. 
it actually made me think a lot of some of the <laughs> when the experiments or the dimension jumping goes wrong in Rick and Morty. There's a lot of like pastiche slapsticking characters together. It's like kill me, kill you know, like whatever the space jump went wrong or something. And it just makes me feel more like that Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland probably also are, like they grew up in the era where they would have been influenced by movies like Hellraiser. So I just got that vibe too. It's like, okay, I, I see some of Rick and Morty's things that inspired Rick and Morty in Hellraiser as well. Yeah. Even though I haven't ever seen an episode of Rick and Morty, I can kind of get that mm. is very much in the in the wheelhouse of a show like that is like self-referencing or not self-referencing, but referential to nostalgic properties from youth which Mm -hmm. is basically what all of the animated tv shows that we grew up with were referencing other parts of you know the 20th century of course (laughs) or 19th century like scrooge mcduck (laughs) right or 14th century like robin hood (laughs) yeah yeah there you go or 50,000 bc like land before time yeah there you go 50,000. 50, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know when dinosaurs existed. I'm not, uh, a, I'm not a, what is it? A geologist? An archaeologist? A paleontologist? Paleontologist. There we go. I think you're thinking of 65,000 years ago. 50,000 is way too recent. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> more, put, put some more zeros. Uh, Just we are going more. by the Gregorian calendar. Oh, right? well, it's right. gorgeous. <laughs> So, Hellraiser. I liked it. I, I I liked it, and it and it's not like a movie I particularly would have guessed I would like, but it just did. Mm-hmm. It, it like every little step along the way, it flipped the right switch at the right time, and the tone. I I don't know. I would throw it to the two of you. The tone of this movie is very different from a lot of the other movies we've done of this era and of this genre. I thought. I thought this was like the brooding teenager of the films that we've done so far, as opposed to like the wacky, goofy, ha 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 movie that we've done so far. This was the most emo thing we've watched and not because of all the leather and body (laughs) modification that we saw. But, (laughs) you know, this was this was very, very, yeah, very brooding, very interesting, but also juxtaposed weirdly with like, I don't know if this is the right term. So movie people, if you know better than me, if you're listening, but like soap opera lighting almost whenever it was on Julia, the mom's character, like it was very soft lighting. There was always very like very exaggerated, like shines off of all of her jewelry or off of like her fingernails or something like it just seemed it seemed very soap opera. It was part melodrama. that's, That's kind of. The, the opening yeah. of the movie where it's just like it's showing the, the movers trying to get the mattress up and flashing to Julia upstairs in the attic and flashing to when she's like having the affair with Frank. It, it felt like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't look. That's like the best way to describe it. It was very soap opera. It was kind of cheesy, really. Like, yeah. you know, the affair with the husband's brother. And it was weird. I, I In terms of pacing for the film... I guess my one critique was they try. I, I, I think they this movie suffered from having too many villain syndrome, the Spider-Man yeah. 3 syndrome hmm. of too okay. many villains. So, like, I guess the obvious villain in the film would be Julia because she's, like, this human who's murdering people 
And then the, the secondary villain would be Frank because he wants Julia to murder people so that he can suck their skin and blood and flesh and become whole again. And then the third villains, which were the very big ones, are the Cenobites because, you know, they're the ones that kind of started it all. But I, I liked all the villains, but I think in this kind of movie, that was my problem with it was there were too many villains and that final act felt very rushed for the Cenobites. Where it was like, all right, Frank's dead, Julia's dead, now we get our 10 minutes of screen time to be villains, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There are too many villains in in the sense that they didn't get to develop the Cenobites maybe as much as would be interesting. O- on that note, I-, I actually thought a more condensed version of this movie would make a great pilot for a TV show. I thought the Cenobites and Hellraiser, the TV show, could have been is still something that would be awesome. And I mean, I mean, they said they made like nine of these. So, but I did like how the, the plot was written so that one group of villains is needed to destroy the other villain, right? Like the Cenobites needed to beat Frank and then Kirsty was able to beat or, or stop the Cenobites with the puzzle box. I can't think of a particular movie like that, but I like movies or stories where, our hero figures out a way to use one group of antagonists to help them against a different group of antagonists. I'm sure that happens lots in movies and books, but it was... Return of the King. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. So I thought that element was cool, but yeah, it was like definitely... If I have any complaint, it's like I needed more Cenobites in this film and less Julia and Frank because I thought they were actually kind of grating. And I thought Julia was so fucking stupid. Like, what did you think was going to happen to you at the end with Frank? Yeah. Of course Frank was going to kill you. You might as well... At the beginning of the movie, <laughs> Julia is looking at two doors. One of the doors says, 100% you will die, no joke. And the other door said, 100% you will not die, no joke. And she's like, well, I better flip a coin, I guess. I have no idea. <laughs> I guess I could... Sorry, Billy, I, I cut you off. I try it. No, no, no. I, I agree. Like, Julie, just the character of Julia, her motivation was... She wanted to get laid. <laughs> she wanted to get laid. It was it was pretty laughable. But again, I kind of like the simplicity of the story just being like, you know what? She is going to get right on board with this, you know, skeletonized man who says, hey, I'm Frank, your ex-lover, and I just love you so much. And, she, and, and I need you to kill people so that I can absorb their energy and rebuild my body. And she is just like, yep, I've got no questions about this. I'm ready to go. What do I have to do? Oh, I have to like bring sort of sad, lonely men back to the house. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. 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 Like she doesn't, there's never a scene where it looks like she's like, huh, is this maybe a bad idea? And she's, you know, she never has even that hint of a crisis, which I just, I mean, that's some sort of mental resiliency to be like this person who is mostly a skeleton with some slime on him is asking me to murder and i am one hundo down for it it's just (laughs) yeah i I think i I said this when we were watching the movie it was like a very bizarre kind of paul bernardo carla homoka is is that her name yeah oh yeah yeah it's just like yeah her character was her character was dumb like there's no way around it but it, it served as plot driving, right? But I did not like her character. I thought her I thought her character was stupid and her yeah. her plot was stupid. My favorite part about Julia yeah. is the scenes where she looked like David Bowie. That was the best part about Julia. <laughs> <laughs> when she was kind of wearing boy, that, she had some the hair and the suit. 
I th- I was like, oh, is oh, yeah. David Bowie's in this movie? <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of speaking of the hair and the and the suit and the wardrobe of Julia in the movie, when she had the flashback with Frank, I didn't actually realize initially that it was a flashback because I wasn't sure like which era of the eighties we were supposed to be in. And yeah. so I was like, I bet when the movie came out in eighty seven, someone would be like, Oh my god, that's such nineteen eighty two hair or nineteen eighty one hair. <laughs> right? And but I was just like, huh, it's a bit different. Okay, now I like after a couple times I figured it out. But right at the start, I was like, wait, is this the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I did. I had that problem too. And actually, just a note for all of our American listeners or non-Canadian, I suppose, Paul Bernardo is arguably Canada's most famous serial killer, and he besides was, Robert Picton, yeah, and he was aided Maybe by Picton. Carla Homolka. So they're. These two names are quite famous in Canadian true crime circles. So it's like a Canadian version of, I don't know, like a John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy or something. So yeah, the, these are these are our great white north uh, horrible references we make to make comparisons. We've got, our, we've got our own horrible monsters from true crime. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about... The scene of Frank coming back, getting the blood and being able to like be reborn, sort of. The first one where he like has his the, arms out and he's like pushing himself yes. up. Yes. Yeah, he that was punches cool. himself through the floorboards. I liked that scene. That was such a stunning stunning effect shot. I have to like I have to say, it looked like they did some sort of filming in reverse stuff like it looked like there was pieces of like the skeleton that would kind of fly up and like reattach and i it kind of looked like somebody you know filming something in time lapse and then filming it in reverse time lapse to sort of have it get put back together Mm -hmm. and i would just i would absolutely love to after this recording go to like youtube and be you know just type in how did they do the like skeleton scene in hellraiser Mm -hmm. because it was really good. Mm-hmm. It was a really gross and effective scene. Yeah. Yeah. Practical effects, in my opinion, look better than CGI, like oh, nine out of ten times. And Episode this movie was... four, five, six versus one, two, three of Star Wars. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Like, outside of the very obviously dated computer effects in this movie, like when she's like sending the uh cenobites back to their dimension and like the little lightning like that was really bad obviously but all the practical effects like any kind of blood guts him being reanimated and all that stuff looked it was disgusting and it looked Mm -hmm. it looked good because it was disgusting like I, I was like obviously it was like okay that's like so much blood that's not real but it was just so visceral as you put it earlier that it's just like this whoever did this spent a lot of time and energy making it look like this and like props to them it worked out really well yeah absolutely and i would i would say just as the you know the the nitpick of the show that it, i bet it wasn't as much computer animated like all the light effects and the the sandalbites disappearing and all the like electricity and stuff Rather, I imagine that would have been something that was rotoscoped mm. where they actually drew on the film cells, drew the animation mm. of the little light balls flying away or the Cenobites disappearing at the end rather than than anything CGI. And I could be wrong, but I, I feel like in 87, that was probably somebody yeah. had to go in, 
with each individual f- film cell and draw in blue lightning on the on the cube and then go to the next one and draw more blue lightning and just like well, add it in frame by frame. That tech and that like the way it looked reminded me actually of the original Tron movie. Uh which would yeah, have been oh, yeah. which would have been around this time as well. I don't remember exactly what year Tron came out, but so it would be like the technology of that time for sure. See, we don't just reference Star Wars movies. We also do Tron sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, when we're, feel- when we're feel- feeling extra sophisticated, we go to video games hey. instead of Star Wars. Yeah, just that. The, mostly the effect scenes were some of the greatest parts of this movie, even, even to the very start, where this movie starts with a man buying a cube in you know some sort of marketplace, and then... He immediately gets like torn to pieces. We don't really see what happens, but then we see Pinhead piecing together sections of his face mm. that are just like ripped, ripped to pieces, and then he disappears. And then I guess it cuts to when Larry and his wife buy the house, which I didn't know actually where this movie was set. Yeah, no idea. Um, so Wikipedia does say the opening scene where he buys the puzzle box is in Morocco. Mm. Morocco. It reminded me very much okay. of like the beginning of The Exorcist, where he gets the yes. thing in in a, in a desert location. And also, I got some Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes <laughs> from that early yeah, scene. Yeah, I got that too. You know, and yeah, you know what? My first thought. Oh, sorry, finish your thought. But just a question. No, because I have a question about the plot that involves that scene in the end of the movie. So you go first. My first thought watching this movie in that opening scene where he's handing money to buy that cube is like, buddy, clean your fingernails. That's clean so your fingernails. There's, there's so much dirt underneath. <laughs> it was so gross. Oh, yeah, but like, I think that was one of the great things about this movie. It was just like so many little details of just gross things, and like, mm. yeah, it was just like. Like, whether it be the dirt under the fingernails, the extreme gore, the rats, the cockroaches, mm. the maggots, it's just, and they're yeah. all, like, super close up and super close shots that just make you feel uncomfortable the whole time you're watching this. But yeah, clean your fingernails. Well, Frank clearly had no problem with being gross and dirty in so many ways. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I get it, Frank. You know, you're you're obsessed with finding all the realms of pleasure and whatever and and you have this box that you have to figure out but you can still sleep on your bed normally you don't have to like push the the springs out of the way and just sleep on a gross pile of rags on the floor and <laughs> get your uh, your square of candles you know set up it was just yeah mm-hmm. it was weird that's all i want to say luke now you say your long awaited point so are we to interpret the end of this movie as the whole movie actually taking place in the box and it's kind of a vision that frank has of like seeing what might happen because isn't like correct me if i'm wrong i thought that last scene where it shows like the kind of homeless guy turn into that pterodactyl looking motherfucking thing (laughs) and fly away with the box and then the camera shot on kirsty and i think his name was steve her boyfriend and then yep. we see that in the puzzle box back on the table from the very first scene of the movie of this Moroccan bazaar, I guess, with, and it looks like it was Frank deciding to buy it or not. Like, I it guess. It was a different guy. It was a different guy? Yeah. Okay. So okay. Frank was in the opening of the film, and then the box ends up back at that merchant who's 
asking a different person okay okay what like if like what his pleasure mm. is or whatever okay that makes so, so it's yeah it's, it's not just a vision frank is having of what might happen if he buys the box Yes. I, well, I, I'm assuming it's not because it's a different guy. If it was Frank, then yes, your theory would probably make sense, mm. but it was definitely a different person. And so then, but also, we're not we're not supposed to think that guy saw all that in the box. It's just we saw it. It's all trapped in the box now, maybe, and the next person is going to be victim or something. Probably. Okay. Maybe I, explain I, better in Hellraiser 2. <laughs> maybe. We'll have to see. I got a very distinct, like, end of Jumanji mm. feel from that part where it's right. like you know they 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 finish the board game and they they get rid of it and then it cuts to somebody else finding it and it's like oh, oh here we go here we go again type of type of vibe from you know from this horror movie which which I feel is very appropriate for the 80s of you know the horror movie is wrapped up for this people this part is done but uh oh the box is still here so ooh we could be back anytime and that's that's how I read it. But I do like that take on this is a, a, a cautionary tale for Frank to be like, <laughs> beware what you purchase comes with a terrible price yeah, that yeah, you yeah. cannot afford. <laughs> well, yeah, Frank was, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think where this movie would suffer is if we start talking about the characters and like what they're doing, because it's kind of nonsensical <laughs> and yeah. very base like I really didn't like Julia or Frank at all. And not even just that I didn't like them, but I just didn't find them compelling either. Like I was like, this movie's revolving. Mm -hmm. Like where's Pinhead? (laughs) Get Pinhead in this movie more. (laughs) Why am I watching this fucking Frank guy when we could have Pinhead on the screen more? And so, I mean, weirdly, I mean, I think it makes me more excited to watch future Hellraiser movies potentially because I thought Pinhead is just, fucking awesome really great mm-hmm. which made the other two villains seem so pathetic <laughs> you know yeah yeah pinhead was sandman and frank and julia were venom and <laughs> goblin jr yeah new goblin <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree i think the the fact that we we didn't get as much pinhead as we maybe wanted was cool and a little bit of a tease Mm -hmm. i will say though i i i even though frank's motivation was pretty straightforward and pretty dumb all of their motivations were pretty pretty dumb and you know say what you like about julia or frank they at least had way more to do than steve who was (laughs) right kirsty's boyfriend who like let's be honest if that movie had no steve character not a thing of it changes. Not one second of the movie is any different. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> yeah, like really all the characters. So Frank just wants all the pleasures of the world, but wants to, his whole body again. Julia yep. isn't satisfied with Larry and just wants Frank's D instead. Larry just wants, uh, just, I don't know. Larry, or yeah, Larry is just, uh, no, Frank. Yeah, Frank is just a normal guy who just wants a normal life and wants his wife and daughter to be happy, I guess. No, 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 that's Larry. That's Frank Larry? is the bad guy. Larry Frank is the bad guy. Larry is the brother. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Larry just wants wants his wife to be happy, wants himself to be happy, wants to like have dinners with his friends and wants his daughter to move in with okay. him and be happy. I put a pin put a pinhead on this one cuz I got something to say about Larry. <laughs> okay, go go with Larry. 
Okay, yes. He's dumb, right? Larry is trying, I would say you're right, his motivation is to make his wife and daughter happy. He just also suffers from not being able to pay attention to anything going on around him ever, which is not a good way to fulfill said goals of making other humans happy. So like it, it, you would have to be like a, a three-year-old to not notice how unhappy Julia is in this house. Okay. Right? You would have oh to God. be a inattentive, a, an additionally inattentive three-year-old. And Larry presumably is a grown man with, totally normal cognitive functioning and he's just like yeah we'll love it here this is so great you right julia yeah you know what and then her face is like fuck this shit and he's like yeah you're gonna love it too she's just like hmm larry you're a fucking moron that's what you are and you probably deserve what's coming i'm gonna insert my own lore into this movie okay so like the scene where larry's watching boxing and he's like really into it so in a past life, Larry was a professional boxer, but he uh, unfortunately suffered a huge loss and suffers from like lifelong concussions, and therefore he can't think straight, and that's why he's unobservant of everything. There it is. There it is. Or, 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 c- counterpoint, <laughs> he's just so happy that they're not in, ugh, Brooklyn, that he's, <laughs> like, he's ob- oblivious to everything else. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is more for fun. I'm not making a deep criticism of this movie because Larry's character, again, didn't really... Like, the thing that's funny is that none of the human characters in this movie actually had to be a certain way because they're kind of like under the uh, thumb of these Cenobites anyway. And mm-hmm. so... There's a, like a dis, there's a discontinuity between what they can even do until the end. Like the really the because like the really only grippingly compelling moment for me of the movie was the the final showdown between Kirsty and the box and all the Cenobites trying to come get her. I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I felt like everything else was kind of a foregone conclusion at every at any given point because of how inept the humans were. But they didn't need to be able because that wasn't the point of this movie. So I'm not actually criticizing Larry's stupidity as a major flaw of this film. But again, I think that's why this movie, maybe that goes back to my earlier point, like this movie knew what it was. And so it didn't, like it didn't make any unforced errors. It didn't make it so that the humans had to be one way or another because they were kind of like fatalistically trapped in this house anyway to be this way with the decisions Frank made at the very beginning of the movie, right? So we're kind of set on this path and the the movie didn't set any tripwires for itself, you know? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you you can't overanalyze the characters in this movie or you're going to have a bad time. But I think... You're going to have a bad time. Yeah. I think I think that's what kept me into this is not the characters because if I it it was completely the practical effects mm-hmm. and the just the visceral nature of everything and the the Cenobites is what kept me in this movie. Yeah. And yeah, if if it was any kind of if if Kirsty was the main she is the main character, like she's the protagonist, but if she was right. like the focal point of the plot, I would have been pretty bored of this movie, I think. Yeah. yeah, she seemed to be scrappy. She seemed to be resourceful. And she was able to to think pretty quickly. But if it had been fully focused on her being the 
you know, be, being the person who's dealing with the box. I think you're right. It would have been it would have been super duper boring. And she only even like gets gets her hands on the box by mistake when she she finally confronts Larry, who has been up in the attic for I don't know what, like months mean, at this point. You mean yeah. weeks? Like Frank, Larry. Oh God, yeah, whatever. Wh- whichever one. You're right. <laughs> it's <was> so hard. <laughs> and then one of them was wearing the other one's face. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Okay, this just occurred to me, and I think this is why I, even though I don't think this is a great movie, I I think it's like an okay to good movie. Is that I, I mentioned last week with Fright Night? One of the reasons I just couldn't get into it is because I didn't get the imperative. I didn't know which part of that movie I was supposed to care about. And mm. at least with Hellraiser, I knew which part of the movie I was, or, or what part of the story I was supposed to care about. I was supposed to care about the puzzle box and this alt- additional realm and like all of the aesthetic of the practical effects were awesome. But I guess it's just like the mu- movie viewer that I am when I know which part of the movie, like what part of this is the imperative, what I'm supposed to care about. I have an easier time watching it, I guess. I, I have less dissonance going on in my mind of like trying to piece it all together of like, well, I don't get it. And so this movie very early was like, okay, even though this is very simple, here's what you should care about. And it didn't betray that the whole film. And it paid off in the end with mm-hmm. the, the same, like the the promise from the beginning is the payoff at the end. And I just, I, I, I guess I appreciate movies like that in a way, you know? Yeah, and I think going into this knowing, I think it was you that mentioned it, Billy, in the intro, where this is kind of, or it might have been you, Luke, where this is like, if you watch Hellraiser 1 and 2 back to back, it's like, yeah, Billy said it. So if you watch Hellraiser 1 and 2 back to back, it it makes for a more complete story. I think knowing that thing about only watching Hellraiser 1 made me like it more as well, because... Um, if, if, if this was the only movie that ever existed in the Hellraiser series and I didn't know that what, like anything else about it, I think I would have left feeling pretty disappointed, but knowing now that there's like a bunch of lore that they probably will explore in the future films and knowing that if I do watch Hellraiser two in the future, I'm going to get more out of Hellraiser one, knowing that that is something that's probably going to happen in my future. I think I'm able to appreciate this one more. And I think this also just occurred to me as we're talking, which is why I love doing this is I think what's very appealing about a hell, the Hellraiser franchise and seeing it is that it's not tied to necessarily a protagonist. You know, it's not tied to a Laurie who somehow has to be in every Michael Myers movie so far, except for three to, you know, <laughs> to, to hold it together like even if the Cenobites come and kill every single person in the movie in a gross way in a gruesome way at the end of the movie that box is going to get you know that that puzzle cube is going to shift back closed and it's just going to wait there ready for somebody else to find it and they can start all over again and I think that's part of what makes it I I mean I'm speaking out of school for sure on this because we haven't seen any of the other ones but it feels like these movies like they don't have to stand on a protagonist to to be relevant you know it's just mm-hmm. like the bad guy is going to come back and the fact that they're demon they're from a dimension and they're demons and they're immortal beings or devils or whatever means great yeah you can't actually kill them we can't like we don't get them to die and then 
Uh oh, mm-hmm. they were alive all along. Like I, I had at no point in this movie was I like, oh, she's killed the Cenobites. No, she just sent them away for a bit. You know, they could be back tomorrow if someone summoned them again, and that's I think was cool. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I like that point, Billy, because I think it augments what I was saying earlier about how I feel like this would be an incredibly good TV show. Like, I think that this, and like, mm. maybe like a, a season, like an anthology, I could see the Cenobite universe making a really compelling season of American Horror Story or something like that. Like, where you don't, Ooh. you don't need the same, it's because it's not a character driven story. It's a mystery driven story with all of these tidbits and a really, really, really compelling antagonist. And, and, and so that's why I, I feel like, <laughs> the modern version of endless franchises, and this is a really positive thing, I think, is good TV, like more long form, mm-hmm. single narrative that you can tell over several hours. So, yeah, that's what that's what like you don't need in these in, in great anthology TV shows. You don't need particularly amazing character development and characters unless it like. Mm-hmm serves the plot itself right so yeah i was just i think that would be like agreeing with you in that sense i think what made this narrative work even though the characters weren't or the human characters weren't great is it definitely felt like there was really good razor focus on exactly what clive barker wanted this film to be you know Mm -hmm. he directed it he wrote it and he wrote it based off of a book he wrote himself. <laughs> so it's like he knows everything about this universe and it's what true. he wants it to be. So he's able to focus on the things that he really cares about and what he thinks he really wants the the audience to look to view and understand of his universe, you know? And mm-hmm. I think the more control, he, I, I would assume he had a lot of control over everything because it's, you know, written and directed by him based off a story written by him that he's able mm-hmm. to be able to tell the story the way that he wants to. So I think that's what probably made this movie work, even though it had really poor characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if poor characters is the right word. I think just inconsequential characters. It's yeah, like maybe. that. Th- these are just meat bags for the Cenobites to interact with a little bit eventually. And because everybody, assuming you know mostly everybody watching this this movie i don't want to assume anything is a human being then a human <laughs> being is the way in <laughs> you know i don't know maybe the cenobites get the hellraiser movies and they're you know upset at how inaccurate it is but i don't have any any of them on the line to talk to <laughs> did you see how many pins we don't use that many pins we don't use that it's a ridiculous amount of pins Are you kidding me <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think Alex, that's that's totally exactly what I'm what I mean when I say I knew what I was supposed to like in this movie and what I was supposed to care about. And maybe to your point Billy about the the characters being inconsequential is that yes, it makes more sense for Julia to be conflicted than forthright. Like her character needed to be kind of weak of will to to make all mm-hmm. that happen. And yes, it makes sense that Frank is essentially a psychopath. And yes, it makes sense that Larry is clueless. But I think what what I, and I mean, I'm not going to make your point for you, Alex, but what I feel like the essence of your point is, Alex, and I, and I think I feel it too, is that 
this movie, probably the weakest part of this movie is executing their human characters in that way. So yeah, the melodrama of, <laughs> of Julia's flashbacks don't make me feel more invested in her decision making or like compel me any more than if it was just not i I don't know like the the presence of the silliness uh, and the soap opera enos made made it show that it it still is a movie of the 80s i guess yeah i think so i think in terms of storytelling in general flashbacks for characters are used to help like the storyteller give the audience a way to relate to the character's current motivations and that's what this flashback was used at it was like oh she had an affair with frank and that's what is gonna help her motive like give this character motivation to you know lure men into the attic kill them so that frank (laughs) can take their flesh and blood and become human again but i think if i was a completely evil person i would have been able to be like yeah yeah i get it i get it but because like her flashback shows her doing something shitty to motivate her shitty behavior. Mm. I just still did not care because I'm like, this person is shitty regardless. Like, (laughs) I don't like, yeah, I'm not that kind of person. So I just don't get Julia as a character, but I think that's, that was his reason for doing like the really soap opera flashback is to show why she would do it. But for Mm. me as someone that doesn't condone that kind of behavior, is that the right word? Condone? Yeah, I think so is just like i don't care whether you show me a flashback of her cheating or not she's still luring people in the attic to have them killed that's that doesn't help me feel any more connection to julia as a character there's almost like a tone of like a a bored housewife Mm -hmm. about julia you know she's she's ignored her husband is clueless he doesn't pay enough attention to her so you know the mysterious stranger or the mysterious brother who has a you know a more rough and tumble life and is has got more mystery about him that's very attractive to her and that like that that story about just like oh you know my husband is so clueless and boring that i'm gonna go out and wander around and find some danger is like taken to the extreme where she's like man frank was so good at having sex with me that even though he's a gross skeleton monster i'm gonna do anything for him and just like that is like takes it takes it way to the uh, like the the far end of the spectrum which i think is the point of mm-hmm. you know the movie yeah, is th- to like highlight now it. Yeah. thematically it was all about like someone struggling with addictions and going to incredible extremes to get their addiction met mm, yeah get their okay, fix right you know what <laughs> she wanted the fix of the frank d so she was like you know what i'm gonna kill people Hot take here. Sure, I like it. Hot take. I would allege that Frank was a gross skeleton monster before he ever came across the Cenobites. Now that's some deep storytelling that we didn't get. (laughs) He was, he was terrible. You know, listen, Luke. On the inside, we're all gross skeleton monsters. (laughs) Yeah, well, he didn't have any problem keeping it uh, or bringing it to the outside. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The characters, the human characters existed to be conduits into the natural mm-hmm. world for the Cenobites and for this kind of whole dimension. I kind of, I liked Kirsty though. I, I liked, yes, I liked Kirsty and I liked Steve, even though he was the most inconsequential of all the characters. 
Yeah. And I, you know what? Okay. This is a snapshot of why I like this style of movie is that there's that scene when they're like kissing at, at the bottom of the stairs going down to the subway, I think. And she's wearing the most stereotypical 80s attire, you know, that leather jacket and that hat. And he's wearing a jean jacket, like the 80s look. And yet none of it, none of it feels like it's an affectation. It just happens to be the clothes that they were wearing that day. So it's an, it's an authentic representation of the time without trying to influence the audience's feelings of an affectation of the look of the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is just the way the world looks right now. And that's what's on camera. And I, I like that authenticity in my art, I guess, you know, where it'd be like, it'd be really easy to... I don't know. There's like, there's lots of movies that, oh, we're going to put a, it's the eighties. Make sure you have a jean jacket and maybe even have a, <laughs> make sure you even have a, a, a little pin on that jacket that says, I love 1987. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing, as opposed to just seeing how the world was to people at that time in terms of like fashion or clothing or aesthetics. And I love that. I love that. But then like, I, I agree with your point, but I, I, I don't think I can give that much credit to them maybe doing this in a purposeful way because mm. this this film is set in the 80s and it was filmed in the 80s so they're just like just wear what you would wear going no, no, to work no. today Th- that, right it's not yeah. like it's not like this film was filmed now and it, they were trying to be like showing it was that it was set in the 80s right? totally it totally like, it was yeah I yeah. a minor refinement then I love uh, I I get a little bit in, unless it's done super well. I don't, I guess I don't like movies and this is more a genre critique maybe than any specific movie, but like, I just feel like there's a lot of movies that are like nodding and winking to you saying, ha ha, see, see, see what we're doing as opposed to this movie, which has none of that. It's just making a story, right? So even though it's said in the eighties, it'd be wrong to call this an eighties movie, I think in, in terms of how we might conceive of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that the difference is they're filming it as it was and it became nostalgic rather than somebody remembering what it was and trying to recreate it for nostalgia. Exactly. I think that is the emphasis on it because, yeah, you look at it and again, I, I saw pictures from when I was, you know, little and that's kind of the stuff that my parents would have been wearing you know that's kind of the style the suit and tie like that that stuff is just what it was rather than somebody being like oh do you remember the 1980s oh hell yeah rubik's cubes and you know jean jackets and pins that say yay ronald reagan or whatever your parents like pins in their head (laughs) shit (laughs) don't tell anyone oh no this is a podcast it was just an acupuncture like appointment that went horribly wrong (laughs) yeah I don't know. He seemed relaxed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he did seem pretty chill, hey? He was just like, uh, yeah, whatever. We're here to... Internally... We're here to, ple- we're here to pleasure you with pain. Now yeah. come. Yeah. Internally... Both literally ha- and figuratively. Internally, I was asking myself, I wonder if Pinhead's going to talk. And before the movie, I was like, I yeah. hope he doesn't talk. I hope he's just a presence. But when he talked, it was like the perfect voice. And I was like, oh, this is an even better presence. I'm glad that this is what his voice sounds like. I don't know. He's mm-hmm. he's maybe, I don't know. This could be a bold statement because we're, you know, 30 plus episodes in. I, f- I think he might be the most compelling villain yet I've seen in any of the movies we've done. 
You'd have to remind me of better ones. Ones that like I look at I him. So. I look at him and I'm like, fuck. I am not messing with that guy. <laughs> no way, no how. I think because he could be threatening in either way. Like if you had a, a another movie where another there's nine movies so this is all speculation but if there was a movie where hell um where pinhead said not one single thing and just sort of glowered and looked mean and imposing it would be just as 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 effective as a character as opposed to him having a little pronouncement and having a you know this is what we are this is why i'm the the leader of the cenobites and you know like he works either way yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it also helped that there were, like, multiple Cenobites that, like, you know, Pinhead's crew, like, Protractor Face did a lot of talking as well. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. One... yeah, the girl one. Lady yeah, Pinhead. Like, yeah, the Protractor <laughs> on the chin. So yeah. it's, like, she did a lot of talking as well. And then there were a couple, there were, like, the other ones that didn't say anything. Like, Chattering Mouth didn't say anything. Thumb with sunglasses only licked. And, yeah, so it, it made for a really, well, like, he has a compelling hot. group of villains. That's, well, huts can talk, Luke. Yeah, but they lick a lot, too. <laughs> Wonky Chewbacca. Yeah, I I guess, like, look, I like Michael Myers as a villain, and I like, I mean, we didn't see him, so I'm going to assume I like Jason as a villain and Leatherface. But I just, I'm not as scared of Michael Myers as I think I was of Pinhead. Like, maybe it's because Pinhead is an, is a, explicitly interdimensional being and so that brings its own terror like holy fuck like some call us demons others call us angels like he's like he's he's savvy to our world and we're not to his which means that we are at such a major disadvantage (laughs) if we were ever to take him on as opposed to michael myers which again he's I guess got some supernatural powers somehow too, but like he's silent. So you'd never ever know anything about him and he's presumably from earth. So I don't know. It's just, I don't, I can't think of any of the villains that were this imposing to me as pinhead is the gravitas. Dan Brown definitely was inspired by the Cenobites, right? (laughs) Go on. Angels and demons. No. Oh, (laughs) that was a stretch. (laughs) That was a that was a long bow to draw, but well, you know what, that that <laughs> that code went beyond Da Vinci to get. That had to be a that had to be a Michelangelo code or something. Yeah, for me, there's honestly not too much to talk about for this movie. Like there were the characters, there were the Cenobites, but like I feel like this was a great introduction to the Cenobites as a kind of group of monster villains demon villains and i i am looking forward to like seeing what the future hellraiser movies if we do watch them have to offer in terms of you know maybe going a bit more into the lore explaining what they do and how they came to be and you know maybe their travel between dimensions or whatever so yeah it's it's like but i i was really intrigued and I kept watching because of just the visual effects again. It's just like they were so gross, but so well done that I, I couldn't stop watching this. Well, I think I'm not sure again about any of this, but I feel like the Cenobites were meant to look like a very, very grotesque version of some of the like iconography in Christianity, especially in like Catholicism and stuff. Like I know I've seen 
pictures of, you know, uh, Mary, who's got, you know, like the bleeding heart, Mary, the sacred heart, Mary, where like, it's very graphic. And the, the way the, the way some of it was staged where, you know, uh, protractor face had that big sort of ring around her and the way that it was lit with her behind looked kind of like a halo in some ways and compare that all with like the the religious statuary that was around at the house mm-hmm. and there just it feels like that's random not accidental <laughs> random scary falling jesus but like just the sort of ecstasy of torment i don't know if that is the right phrase but i you know i've seen you know, you know, we saw it in Carrie. There's scary Jesuses and, and, and big statues of, you know, Christ on the cross with his like, you know, the, the wounds, the, 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 the crown of thorns, the stab in the side. I wonder if like if either of you have any more to add to that sort mm. of train of thought that that kind of was running with me throughout the movie was very saint like almost in a perverse way. Alex, you're putting your hand up. So you got to go. You got to go now. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely like some form of. I guess to put it like twisted Christian themes in it. Cause like when Frank gets, you know, found by the Cenobites in the attic that he actually did escape death and they come back for him and he admits that he killed Larry or whatever they, and they capture him and they like, you see him all hooked up and in the attic and kind of like put on display. And then mm-hmm. as uh Kirstie's running away, she turns around and he's like smiling and he just says, Jesus wept. Right shortest bible Mm -hmm. verse so it's like there's these kinds of themes that i'm sure clive barker wanted to like was probably exploring they they might have been talked about more in the book and i'm maybe in future movies they kind of explore that kind of theme i guess but yeah definitely i i I agree with you that there were there was like a lot of kind of backwards christian imagery Mm. in a way yeah yeah, or not maybe not Christian, but religious anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, no, I would. It was Christian. It was Christian. <laughs> it was definitely like okay. tapping into a an overall minor or a minority element, but certainly existent element of the history of Christianity, which is its very masochistic tendencies. And so it's funny, Alex, you brought up Dan Brown because I can't remember if it was. I think it was actually da vinci code it wasn't da vinci code yeah the, the one priest the priest monk type guy like a, a catholic sect i think yeah and he had that like the opus sp- day yeah the 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 spike thing around his leg so that every time he moved he would feel pain in the way that christ felt pain so that there is certainly an element of christianity that literally worships christ's pain by trying trying to revivify it in their own lives and part of this is also like the ascetic order of, of monks and priests throughout history who live like a version of this is like the very frugal living kind of thing. Mm, right. Fr- the frugality that can, the, the end of it is the masochism and the self like flagellation, self flagellation, self harm, all that kind of stuff. So all of that is again, a minority of Christianity, but certainly existent in its history. And yeah, so I think this movie definitely played on that aspect of it, of the, the glorification of, the part of where Jesus was whipped and crucified, right? And and the almost kind of like putting that element of his experience into the focus in a in a very cult like way that I think is probably a deeper reading on someone like Frank, who seemed just more kind of like self involved. Like he taking advantage of that for pleasure was seemed to be Frank's motivation. But Yeah, because we kinda yeah. got we kinda got Frank at the start 
you know, he had he had little statues of of people, you know, engaged in you know penis vagina intercourse and and like he had pictures like from his partners and so it seemed like he was just looking for a new way to get off and you know maybe he had gone through all the regular kind of bondage stuff and was like well i guess fish hooks through all of my body like Mm. let's do it and so yeah yeah Yeah. another i guess like maybe i'm completely wrong but some another kind of similarity maybe in a Christian thematic sense was when Larry cuts his hand moving the mattress and he's spilling the blood in the attic and the blood yes. is what revives Larry or sorry, it was what revives Frank. And we might notice it's he like, cuts it on a, a nail like kind of. Oh my. Okay. Yeah. This is <laughs> the third Testament. Yeah. Hellraiser is the third Testament. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you know what? That nail was too strong to cut him that deeply. I bet. I bet you could have hung a really good eaves trough off it, though. <laughs> so mad. Yeah, also, it was like the dull end of the nail cut him that bad. That doesn't make sense. That would scratch you. Yeah. Like, the amount of the amount of weight and pressure you'd have to put on the dull side of a nail to get cut that deep was just unrealistic. Yeah. You know what? I'm changing my entire well, opinion of this movie. Worst <laughs> movie ever. I, I I thought you were gonna go along with uh, not necessarily the the nail cutting him on the hand, but the fact that it was interspo- intercut with Julia remembering her time with Frank and the fact that he cut his you know the way they edited the film was like he cut his hand right around the same time that she was climaxing almost from this remembrance and just sort of the way of of equating this this part that was like pleasure that's that's going to happen or, or pain that's going to happen with her pleasure just kind of that like that barrier and that line between pleasure and pain being mm-hmm. blurred but to the one billionth degree yeah in this movie yeah yeah that's that's awesome well i guess that that whole putting it that way makes me appreciate the whole soap opera of it more yeah. like just like mm-hmm. tying in that that what you just said with you know what the cenobites do with like you know pain and pleasure yeah and I think it's just occurring to me now, because this movie is so prosthetic and body horror heavy, you don't really necessarily think of the kind of contextual and psychological and historical elements. But this movie is called Hellraiser, and Pinhead does talk about some call us, some call me an angel, some call me a demon. Probably, if you want to give a deeper reading to this movie, it's a little bit of a, a very minor, but not not totally not their meditation on the ambiguity between heaven and hell and angel mm-hmm. and demon and like lucifer was an angel before he was satan right yeah. and how just that that kind of supernatural i'm re- i'm reminded of the line from the departed where jack nicholson says some want to be cops some want to be criminals i'm asking you when you face a loaded gun what's the difference <laughs> You know, like that kind of thing. There seems to be that kind of ambiguity between the Cenobites of like, are they good or are they bad? Well, it's almost the wrong question in some sense, you know, which is interesting. It's like, yeah. depends what you think, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they're they're almost uh, they're almost in a realm of neutrality where they're like, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this exact thing. It's going to be painful, but you'll either be into that or not into that. And then you are deciding, like you are making the value judgment based on what we are doing. We are just doing a thing. And wh- whoever believes, you know, you can believe what you want about it, but yeah. 
Yeah, they're, they're like amoral, right? Hmm. I mean, one thing that kind of made me feel that the Cenobites weren't quite that balance, I guess you could say, where they were a bit more malicious than what they appeared or what they said they were, was, you know, they Kirsty opens the puzzle in the in her hospital room and goes into that dimension and gets and like finds out that the Cenobites exist and they explain to her what they are and they're going to be like oh you summoned us so we're taking you with us but she she kind of in a way bargains with them and is like hey like Frank actually escaped and he's alive if I bring you to him will you take him and leave me alone is is essentially what lets her get out of that situation so she does bring them to Frank and they do get Frank back. But then instead of, you know, quote unquote, honoring the deal, they decide that they're going to take her along anyway. That was the part of the Cenobites that I was like, you know what? They are a bit more malicious than what they might appear to be. Yeah, it seemed like they had some they, they did have some desires because they were just like, you know, here, here we are. We're, we're just going to whoever opens this box, we're going to kill them. And she's like, okay, but somebody who you did that to got away and is still alive. And, you know, uh, pin, Pinhead is like, what? How, how? That's not possible. No one can get away from us. And yeah. so they, like, they sort of had this like vanity or this, I don't know if vanity is the right word, but, you know, they had this like, you know, like, it, it seemed like they're like, oh no, but our reputation is like, people can't get away from us. And if mm. like this motherfucker got away from us, like we can't let that stand because- <laughs> Imagine if the public found out that this one human got away from us, what will they think of us now? Yeah. If I can't, I can't go into work on Monday being like, you know what? You let Frank get away and being like, I know, I know, I'm sorry. They're like, oh, what an idiot. What a bunch of loser Cenobites. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a Rorschach test. I, I interpreted- because I see them as almost Cenobites, maybe this is intentional, they, they seem to me almost like robots. Like this is actually just their programming to be this way. Yes. They have a principle yeah. or they have a rule that if if a human opens the puzzle box, we must tear them apart. It's like a if then without a moral judgment necessarily to mm-hmm. it. So the fact like, yeah, it could be vanity on the part of Pinhead or it could be like, oh, we have a disjunct in our computation and Frank is still alive and we need to fix that. Hmm. Maybe the best way to do that is to allow this human to feel like we will be making a deal with her so that she can allow us to close our loop kind of. Thing. So these Cenobite robots have become sentient. Is yeah. what you're saying? I think I, I, Cenobite I, I think that there's something, I don't know. My my guess, my hypothesis would be that Clive Barker wanted them to be amoral and they just happened to be I mean this this actually gets a little bit into the anxieties of future AI that we might face is that it it would be almost they won't be evil, they'll just be indifferent and that actually mm. causes way more damage than evil can, right? Cuz at least evil is kind of predictable. Whereas indifference is yeah. like, you don't know, like you'd have to figure out what their programming is to figure out what they might do. And then that's even really hard. So I don't know. I mean, I think that they looked evil and they looked great, but the ambiguity of their own presence, it's like, we actually, like, it didn't seem to me they hated Frank. They're just like, well, we have a, we have an open circuit an open loop and it must be closed. Yeah. It seemed like, yeah, they're basically like, 
Frank did X. The response is Y. You know, we can't we can't let him not do Y. And, uh, you know, therefore, you know, by that logic, though, Luke, then Kirsty has also done X and Y has not happened to her. Yeah. So I feel like the, the sequels could be mm-hmm. if if Kirsty appears in any of the sequels or in the second one, at least, I feel like it might be the closing of that loop yeah. as well, because they have their function. Mm hmm. To do. Well, and I mean, the contract is I not do, yet. Fulfilled. One of you brought up the word addiction earlier. Yeah. I can't remember. Frank is essentially a drug user, right? Alex, Alex brought that up. Frank is essentially a drug user. He's using the puzzle box Cenobites for his own physical pleasure. And I think that there is something thematically relevant there where heroin isn't evil, but it still ravages the fuck out of you, right? Like as, right, as, yeah. a, as a non-sentient if A, then B thing, drugs are potentially a good example of a real-life version of the Cenobites, you know, that kind of thing. Right, yeah, drugs aren't injecting themselves into you mm-hmm. to be like, ha-ha, now you're addicted to exactly. heroin. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. <laughs> just to sort of close out, we kind of talked about the Cenobites. Just to kind of close out on them, though, listeners, Luke is currently wearing a T-shirt that has Sith Lords on it. It's got Vader. It's got Palpatine. It's got Kylo Ren and Darth Where's Maul Dooku? on there. My no Dooku. favorite Sith Lord. Where's yeah. Dooku? But just the, and they're they're sort of arranged in this. I think it's mimicking the Queen. Yeah. Headshots like the the album Queen, and. I would be very, 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 very surprised if a T-shirt with the four Cenobites in that <laughs> configuration did not exist. Yeah, for and sure. I, that's all I've been able. That's all I've been able to think about for the last like, as we've been recording. I'm just looking at your T-shirt. I'm like, yep, those four. Like, <laughs> I'll take a picture of it and send it to you, and you can put it on any promotional for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> great. You could, or like, great, you could great, superimpose great. their faces on it. I don't know. Could, yeah, I'm not that skilled, but yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Kirsty, the character, because I don't know if you feel the same way, but I got a lot of Nancy from mm. Nightmare on Elm Street vibes from her. Just from the way she looked to the way she acted to her dream sequence nightmares. What about you, though? Agree? Disagree? 100%. Yeah, one part of, yeah, one part of her plot that I just did not understand and... I don't think they ever resolved was that nightmare she had with like the bed sheet with the crying baby underneath and it was just <laughs> becoming bloody and then there were feathers everywhere. What was that about? Well, didn't that end with her seeing Larry and his face was all deformed? Oh, so was was it just like a premonition of what was to happen and that's why she called her dad and was like I just wanted to make sure you're okay? That's kind of what I thought. That's what okay. I took it as. Yeah, it was weird. It was a weird sequence. Sure was. In terms of her as a character, she was fine. I thought she, like the the actor that played her, Ashley Lawrence, looked a lot like Kobe Smulders from mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Robin, yeah. How I Met Your Mother. So, yeah. But I mean, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street vibes for sure. And of MCU fame, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, eight Maria Hill. Yeah, I think... Speaking of the the dream sequence that she had, I mean, this movie was rife with imagery for the budding film student, you know, to look at just in terms of the time lapse stuff with uh, Frank reconstituting into his body to the the nurse in the hospital just watching 
a video of a flower blooming over and over again, like totally normal TV stuff in this hospital. Just the imagery of that and the, the, the stuff of like a plate of food with maggots on it and a rat being nailed to a wall, just all those weird little sort of one-off scenes that were very grotesque and very disgusting felt like, you know, this is stereotypical film student making a, a film that shows the real world and what it's really like. Everybody (laughs) open your eyes, people like just that. Yeah. That sort of vibe was just all over the place in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. This film is called rage visualized. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was the ring movie. That was what it was about. (laughs) Movie about rage, but it gave me a lot of those vibes as well. Yeah. I get, uh, I don't really have too much more to say about the, the plot or the rundown aside from, you know, the, the obvious allegory of Julia wanting something and then it ending up, you know, killing her as a result. You know, she wanted Frank back. He was bad for her. She wanted him anyway. And then it eventually killed her. I guess you can put on other, you know, sort of addiction onto that. You know, it ended up costing her her life because she couldn't couldn't separate from it. Yeah, it didn't care what it destroyed in order to get what it wanted. And then the fucking pterodactyl at the end. Jesus. (laughs) Yes. Can we talk actually about that old guy? Like what? Who do we think that was? Alex and I were talking a little bit while it was on. We're like, is he Rasputin? Is he Jesus? (laughs) I think he's just hungry for crickets. Who? (laughs) I think the homeless looking guy who's eating crickets is the merchant from the start of the film. Oh, you think so? Is the what? Sorry. I that's my suspicion. Like the guy that sold Frank the puzzle box at the Uh, very start. Maybe. I have a feeling it's him because he's like watching these inv- events unfold. He's following Kirsty around. When finally Frank gets what he asked for, he takes the box back, brings it back, and tries to sell it again. You know what? He could also be Lucifer himself, I think. It's quite, mm. that's not an implausible, especially with eating the insects. I know that there's a lot of like kind of aesthetic iconography around the devil and having like eating bugs being around bugs having bugs come out of orifices of his body kind of thing right and so that could be part of it and then if we think about what he does like he saves the puzzle box from being burned presumably or destroyed so that the cenobites can still access our world i i have no idea my guess is it's either Lucifer or a really other high-ranking <gasps> lieutenant in hell. Maybe it's Paimon. Maybe it's Payment. Ah, Hail Payment. Hail Payment. Hail Payment. That's hereditary. It was weird. It was random. But if if I'm trying to put the hobo pterodactyl in the context <laughs> of the story, then I think it's I think it's the merchant. Yeah. Hobo pterodactyl is a great band name. I'm just saying right now, hobo pterodactyl, <laughs> great band name. Hobo pterodactyl yeah well friends is there anything else that we didn't we didn't go over that you'd like to talk about before we before we wrap it on this one because you know aside from our scariest parts and stuff which we'll go over in a second but any last last calls alex you're shaking your head luke anything else i will just add in then if for anybody who's playing horror movie bingo at home this is another one where the house gets kind of fucked up in the end <laughs> yeah, of it yeah true yeah so <laughs> it kind of like more just disappears though than gets destroyed but then it's on fire still like the remnants are on fire but it just like got ghost it's disappeared 
Yeah, it's like it's like an earthquake. Everything's falling, like the foundation's falling, the roof's falling, it's caving in on itself. They get out, they close the door, and then the next shot as they're walking down <laughs> from the steps, you just see like a chair on fire. <laughs> it's like where did the just, house go? Is this is this where the house is? Is it like immediately after? I think was that weird. was meant to be like time had passed and the house burned down completely. And then again, nobody else in the neighborhood was like, Maybe we call the fire. No? Okay. Oh, all right. That's, that's you know fine. what? You know what? If it was Brooklyn, they would have called it uh-huh. in. <laughs> Ugh, Brooklyn, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, wait. There is a point that I wanted to to make about this movie before we before we close the book before we solve the puzzle cube mm. of hellraiser i really like getting the confirmation that the the creature from cabin in the woods that was the tall man in tight leather clothing with saw blades stuck into his face holding a puzzle sphere very very nice homage to pinhead so Definitely. we yes, yes. we talked about saw face when when we talked about cabin in the woods a few episodes back but just sort of seeing like there's no way there's no way this was like a coincidental it was just enough different pinhead's younger to, brother <laughs> to be exactly the same yeah yeah we can't get sued if he has saws in his face it's completely different he's holding a sphere not a cube Duh. so settle down <laughs> yeah that's a good reference though for sure yeah. now that i get it, it it makes a lot more sense and it's 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 cool to see like another kind of attachment that cabin in the woods had to another kind of horror franchise so that's cool that we're, yeah. we're i'm still learning more every every week book closed all righty friends then what was what was the scariest part of this movie or or i guess with this one grossest part of the movie too we can do both because there was a lot a lot in contention for grossest and scare uh, grossest part at least scariest i have one but i want to hear either of yours first i mean if, if we're saying grossest part of the movie i'm going to say the whole thing and i'll kind of go over that a little bit in my rating sure in terms of the scariest part of the movie for me it was when kirsty's trying to get away from frank and she goes into like the storage room where there's the falling jesus and whatever and then one of the bodies that julia has killed and hidden that room falls out and all this all these maggots fall out of the mouth that was the scariest part of the movie for me yeah yeah it was both one of the grossest parts of the movie and it was also like a kind of a jump scare. So I'm just like, it was a dub- it was a doubler for me. It was a twofer. Yeah. Luke, what about you? The combination of gross and scary probably is that thing that looks like it's a combination of the thing from the thing met up with one of those giant scorpion motherfuckers from Wrath of the Titans or something. So he just got this like fucking oh, yeah, gross yeah. scorpion thing. That was like, it was very gross, and the face was disgusting. And I was like, okay, this is one of the only things that's actually chasing anyone in this movie, so it's kind of scary. But I, it still wasn't scary, but it was gross. So I'd say that. Yeah. I think, for me, my scariest part of the movie was just before the, the maggot barfing scene with the, the, the body that fell out was actually the Jesus that fell out of the closet <laughs> and like scared her. Like that was that was because there hadn't been too many jump scares in that way to that point that I can think of. There has been like some shots and some reveals which are quick cuts, which feels like different than watching somebody open a door and having something fall out. And so when the statue of Jesus fell out, I was like, Bleh. and then by the time, you know, it happened again, I was like, oh, another thing fell out. And then I was like, 
scared on top of it because it was a corpse and there was a bunch of maggots pouring out of its face, which was like, that was like more gross. But yeah, the, the, the jump scare, jump scare Jesus was, was my <laughs> scariest part of the movie. JSJ. 10 times fast. <laughs> jump scare Jesus. <laughs> but out of, you know, out of spooky extra dimensional puzzle cubes, what do we want to rate this? Out of five puzzle cubes. Alex, why don't you head one? So I want to hear your... Why don't you go first? So I, I didn't know if I liked this movie when we first started talking about it. I think I think my overall final opinion is that this was a pretty decent movie and I did like it. So, but the thing is, like, it was, it was things I don't enjoy. Hmm. Like, it was gratuitous gore. It was almost like gore porny, really. Like, that's not something I enjoy. I don't get off to that kind of stuff. If you do, that's fine. Uh, but <laughs> that's not for me. <laughs> and it was just like, just so many things that made me feel so uncomfortable in this movie. The rats, the the maggots, the, the hooks going into skin and just ripping yeah. stuff out. Like, super, yeah. super gross. The overuse of the word daddy. Oh, God. <laughs> that's the worst part. <laughs> Uh, yeah and i think it was all those things combined that made this a really uncomfortable experience for me but looking at it as a horror movie lens like they made me feel uncomfortable and the cenobites were intriguing enough that i enjoyed watching this movie so i'm gonna give it a three interdimensional puzzle boxes out of five nice like i it's not a bad movie i think it was a good movie but it's not it's good for things that i don't like Mm. so mm. kind of going forward kind of skipping ahead i don't think this is a movie i'm gonna watch again because i don't like feeling this way mm. fair enough so yeah three out, three out of five for me three out of five luke yeah i think to be consistent like i said at the very beginning like it might you might think that the way we've talked about this film and the way i've talked about it i was gonna get a really high score the the dialogue is still quite poor and the acting is very very poor so i have to like kind of hold myself to my own standards there so i'm going to give this movie 3.5 out of 5 mm. Be- and and i guess that's not a low score but it seems low to me considering those were the only things i think were really not good about it but they were so not good that they got a whole 1.5 taken off of it because yeah there's just a 30-minute less version of this is a really great TV show pilot. There is so many yeah. doors of this world opened, but without being explained, that I can't wait for the next, you know, nine episodes of the season kind of thing. Where is this going to go? Now, obviously, it's franchises, and it probably degenerates because most franchises, let alone horror ones, do. But quite, quite interesting, the poor dialogue and poor acting notwithstanding. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I thought a lot about what to give this one. And e- like e- even from when we we finished watching it to the discussion, I've been going between two different numbers. And I think just because this would have been I imagine I have to imagine that this would have been in 1987 a very different take on a horror genre that had happened to that point. Like, I don't, I don't know yet. I'm still not well-versed enough to know what had come before it, but just the idea that there is a reason why these things could possibly come back because they're in a different dimension, just the goriness of it, the straight down the line, you know, you did a, so B is going to happen. 
and there's nothing you can sort of the inevitability of that mixed with the practical effects was just so enjoyable for me that i want to give this one four puzzle cubes out of five so it's not it's not like the the best that we've seen but just because it is something different and because it it's trying something different took a big swing and did a good job with that big swing four four out of five and i i would probably watch this one again but i'm more excited now to watch other ones I will say. Mm. And Alex, Alex, you're you're a no for watching again, but Luke, would you watch this again? Only to like catch myself back up to the second one. Like for example, if mm. we're not going to watch or like if it was going to be a couple years from now before I watch the second one, I'd probably watch the first one again just to like just before to make sure I was totally caught up. But if that happened anytime soon, no, probably not. And then not for really any other reason, I don't think. Yeah. I want to I want to reiterate that I I'm saying I'm not watching again not because I think it's a bad movie but because it's just like I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to see rats and You know what? I don't want to see rats and, and You know what it looked again. like? Yeah. It looked like the aftermath of a guar concert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh totally. Well, I think it's time to cheer a couple things. Should we do some some things of cheering? I'll go first this week, if that's cool. Mm-hmm. And my my cheer this week is uh, through Instagram. It, it is as we were recording. It is still in the first couple weeks of the new year. And there's like a lot of people to trying to do stuff every day, daily challenges and things. But one that I've been really enjoying is my friend Jennifer through Instagram is a very talented guitar player. And she's doing a riff a day challenge. So she's posting like a minute long video to her page of just like a riff with like a looping pedal. Sometimes she has electric guitar, sometimes acoustic. And it's just nice to have one minute, one to two minutes out of your day of just somebody very skillfully playing the guitar. So Jen, whose Instagram handle is Jen underscore does underscore stuff is doing the riff a day challenge. And uh, also, this was uh, Hellraiser was her favorite movie when when I asked. So uh, I, I'm happy to have watched it for you, Jennifer. Nice. And I hope more people check out your riffs. And I hope you're still doing them by the end of January. <laughs> A good crossover. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> Who wants to cheer next? I'll go next. My cheer's pretty simple. This week, I rewatched the movie Logan Lucky. <laughs> and mm. that movie is so good and so funny. For those of you that haven't seen it before, I highly recommend it. It it's pretty much Ocean's Eleven, but instead of trying to like, like really sophisticated people trying to rob a Vegas casino, it's like it's some Southerners trying to rob like a NASCAR speedway, and it's got it's got Daniel Craig, Adam Driver, and Channing Tatum, and the three of them are just so funny together. So nice. it's a really good movie. It's it's actually it's directed by Steven Soderbergh, so he he oh. did the Ocean series. So it's like you can see there's connections to it already. Mm. And it's just a very funny and charming movie. So awesome. That's my cheer. Luke, what are you cheering? So in the last week, David and I watched the film Into the Wild for a really true fiction episode. And I was just reminded at how fucking awesome of a musician Eddie Vedder is. And just the original songs he has on that soundtrack and then his cover of Hard Sun. So... I'm just going to do a something to cheer the mensch of a musician that is Eddie Vedder, one of the greatest. Nice. Well, that's going to bring us 
to the end then with our with our cheers bring us to the end of another episode of nothing to fear and i want to thank everybody who listens every single week and we have a review not through itunes which is a great way for us to receive other reviews but one that was shared to a fan's instagram page who discovered us and so i'm going to read it out here it was part of a bunch of story slides from a lady who I've been following for about a year now called Jocelyn. And she was sort of talking about ways to stay positive and stay happy and find moments of joy in light of all of the horrible things that happen in the world. So this kind of picks up in media res, but it says, in hindsight, this horror podcast has unexpectedly held me together the last few days. I do love a good horror movie and I love the candor and thoughtfulness and humor between the hosts. And then she goes on to say, I often talk about the benefits of leaning into activities that don't on the surface seem spiritual, but if they bring you joy and comfort, then they're just as valuable for your soul. And then she says, and brackets <laughs> and mindset, but I'm ching old account name. Cause she, she also runs a podcast called the soul and mindset podcast, which is all about like, you know, just about your, your well-being and intention setting and, and checking in with yourself. And so just getting that little shout out was really cool. So thank you, Jocelyn for the for the review and thank you <laughs> i still i'm still getting a kick out of the fact that one of the adjectives was thoughtful <laughs> hey it's like wow we are thoughtful luke we, we take those well we're sure okay i'll take candor take and i'll even take humor but the fact we are you know talk about logan lucky we're, we're we're pulling a fast one on the world here, Luke. Don't tell people the greatest con of the twenty the twenty first century is is at risk. I can't I can't help it. It's my candor. It's so candor. But yes, thank you, thank you to people who thank you to everybody who takes time out to to send me a, a DM through the Nothing to Fear podcast to to rate us on apple Podcasts or, or subscribe wherever you listen it's a super great way to support the show by increasing word of mouth thank you to everybody who has reviewed and rated in the past and a five-star rating and a review really goes a long way to help us so if you have a minute or two why don't you do that and if you have a couple dollars that you'd like to throw our way or throw towards us and get a piece of cool merchandise, there are a couple ways you can do that. You can either go to our Tee Public store where we have a couple of designs up, but you can also go to our Society6 page, which will be linked in the show notes, where you can buy a great many of artworks and you know, things you can own with with the the logo on it primarily but also the episode covers designed by katie rogers the ones of the specific sort of minimalist monster versus us theme that she's been doing for us and those are always super fun to see what she comes up with next and so those will always be added to the the store and you can get that on anything from a t-shirt to a set of coasters to on society six there's insane amounts of things there's there's an option to upload a design for like duvet covers and shower curtains and <laughs> <laughs> lawn furniture like you can anything you want with with nothing to fear on it you can get on society six so so do check that out if you have a minute and help support the show and the other way to support us is to follow us on our social media 
you can follow the show at nothing to fear podcast on instagram you can follow us on twitter nothing to fear p1 you can send us an email at nothing to fear podcast at gmail.com and you can also follow me i am at billy by design i before e when spelling billy and underscores between the words you can check out my page on instagram and watch my show quarantine kitchen which i host on monday evenings with a guest uh, it's a whole bunch of fun and luke where can the lovely people see and interact with you in any way they want to well see probably nowhere but you can listen to <laughs> really true fiction the other podcast i do all of on all major podcasting apps Ooh. any any new exciting episodes coming out and i just did dune most recently yeah today i mean i guess this will be like three weeks later but today we released american beauty and danica was a guest on that one so that's kind of fun Ooh, and... friend of the pod danica <laughs> yeah she made uh when we were recording american beauty she made a crossover really true fiction nothing to fear joke and i couldn't help but notice that she would probably be one of the only people who would get that so it, it seems to be an appropriate, at least Luke joke, to make a joke that no one else will get. Perfect for the pod. Perfect for the pod. That so an upcoming, yeah, I think in the near future, we're going to be doing with guests Ready Player One and Avatar, the show, not the movie. So The Last be, Airbender? The Last Airbender, at least season one. Oh, so. That's such a great I love show. that show. Mm-hmm. Such a good show. I'm excited. Nice. So that's really true fiction on all of the different podcasting things. And Alex, how about you? Anywhere anywhere else they can find you? No time for humor today. No, you cannot find me anywhere except this podcast because I have to pee so bad. So let's end this episode quickly. Go Billy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you, Alex, for writing the uh, theme song. Thank you, Katie, for designing all the artwork for the show. And thank you, Madison, for designing the daytime of safety design. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Anchor, everybody. You're all great. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Next week, we are going to be watching Saw. Ooh. We're going to see nice. Saw. So that's what's <laughs> nice. coming up next. I already and saw Saw. I have not seen Saw, but goodbye, Luke. <laughs> Hurry goodbye. up and say your goodbye, Luke. <laughs> goodbye, Luke. <laughs> Goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye, Luke. Goodbye, Alex. Remember, folks, they're just (laughs) movies. There's nothing to fear. Luke, do you Mm -hmm. want to close the curtains in your house? (gasps) Well, we're almost done. Here, I'll just move my microphone. Okay. There. Easy game. (laughs) Easy game. (laughs) For, (laughs) if this is still in, listeners, I've been watching the sun move across Luke's room, and it's just slowly illuminating more and more of his face as he's squinting. (laughs) <laughs> and not wanting to move his mic to make noise. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm just getting brighter. <laughs>